Welcome to the National Democratic Institute's Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. In these candid conversations recorded from home, politically active women from around the globe interview each other about the male-dominated world of politics. They're the best examples of why we need to move faster to reach political parity between men and women before the middle of the next century and change the face of politics. In this episode, Ambassador B. Kim Shao speaks with Fauzia Abdi Ali, president and founder of Women in International Security in the Horn of Africa, in an interview about advancing women's leadership and peace and security in Kenya, Africa, and around the world. Hello, uh, welcome to this episode of the Changing Face of Politics podcast series. My name is Ambassador B. Kim Shao, and I'm the representative of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office in Washington, D.C. My guest today is Fausia Abdi Ali, who is the president and founder of Women in International Security in the Horn of Africa. I am very much looking forward to this conversation today as we talk about the role of women in changing politics, but of course, also in changing the face of the world. Um, Fauzi, hello. Hello, Ambassador. It's good to be here. Thank you for you and NDI for having me. In yes, well, you know, it's uh, quite fascinating um, to see more women playing important roles in security. And traditionally, we often um, look at the narrative and discourse on international security and conflict, and we often see women as victims. Um, but in terms of playing a role in facilitating peace, in taking leadership positions, um, I think it is great to see women. Uh, playing that role, and I'm so delighted to be able to have this opportunity to talk to you. And I'd like to start by asking you, what motivated uh, you to get politically active, and specifically in the area of security and peace? For me, getting active was not only a calling, but it was necessary. So I grew up uh, in Kenya, uh, in a town called Kisumu. And what was synonymous with Kisumu is each time we had uh, an election, what would happen is immediately after the election, we would have some level of political violence post that election. And coming from a community which was considered marginalized because we were not necessarily ethnic majority in that uh, in that county, uh, it was interesting for me to try and understand why is it each time we have, in order for our voices to be heard, most people would go out into the streets and uh, actually debate around the, not only the political processes, but also the sustaining of peace within the country. And so my work began from that urge to sort of get an understanding, a deep understanding on peace and security, as well as democratic spaces. Uh, and so for me, what I do actually is I actually go out and talk to different civil society organizations, including uh, community-based organizations, on why it's important for us who focus on peace building, sustaining peace, on security issues, to actually also have a political strategy when it comes to democratic peace. Uh, for us to find meaningful and create opportunities where participation 
and addressing of the causes of conflict is done through also the state institutions as well. And so all this began from that urge. I think also from the fact that for a long time, I noticed like most of the CSOs who we were engaging with earlier on, actually felt they need to actually be against government and not necessarily work with government. And I think for civil society, as much as we are here to also make sure that we are like uh, looking into some of the human rights issues that may be violated, etc. We also exist in order to be able to promote nonviolence in our ways of doing things, but at the same time, uh, being able to be open to things like to uh, to dialogue as well with our counterparts who are in in most cases within government and uh, other state organs. Yes, so you started out um, with a concern about democracy in your communities and expanded your involvement in that way. And I'm curious, um, what do you think the role of uh, women has been in the process? Um, do you think the community is supportive of you playing this particular role? So I think uh, the space of having women and especially young girls engaging in politics has improved. I think now if we look back and tying this to even uh, the anniversary we are going through now that it's 20 years since we had the WPS agenda coming to play both 25 years for Beijing and 1325, it's 20 years, we see a significant change. Um, globally, as we all may know, is the women legislators have increased from 13% in the year 2000 to 25% in 2020. And I think this is important to put across. In Africa, where I come from, the number of women legislators has increased from 11 to 24%. In Kenya, uh, when we held our 2017 elections, we have one 172 women who actually took part and won seats. This is up from 145, uh, which was in uh, 2013. But despite all these improvements, I think one of the key things that is still eluding us uh, is the fact that we still don't have the critical mass when it comes to female legislators. Uh, we've still not met 30% quota, and I, and I think this is across many countries as well. And this is still indicative of the power dynamics within societies. So for persons like me, when engaging in this space, uh, because we come from spaces that are very patriarchal in nature, right? Uh, it, they, it's still that challenge of addressing the importance of women in leadership. There is a lot more, uh, there's still gender stereotypes that are associated with uh, women in leadership, uh, which we continuously work with other women peace builders to address in what we do so that we create spaces not only for ourselves, but for the future generation to be actively engaged, not only in uh, political leadership, but also in the decision making spaces in whatever activity they want to take up. Yes, well, you, you noted um, some changes over the past 20 years in terms of the level of women representation. Uh, do you feel there's been, are, are there generational differences over um, the support for uh, different roles of women uh, in your society? I think there is generational differences. I think for one, one, one makes me very optimistic in this space is when you look at young people, the young girls, young women, uh, 
they are actually going out of their way to break the gender stereotypes that exist. I think they are coming out and we are coming out strongly to take back spaces that were predominantly men's spaces. At the same time, we are also looking at how do we better address issues to do with peace and security. We don't necessarily have to follow uh, what we sometimes term as very traditional approaches to peace and security, but rather embracing what is new and can be useful for improving this space. And in one uh, such example is the use of technology. I think right now what technology has provided to most people, both young and old, is uh, opportunity to have your voices heard, opportunity to put out your messaging, uh, opportunity to reach as many people as possible with what you want to put across. And I think this has been critical in, in shaping how the different generations are looking at uh, the political spaces and the peace building spaces. As you talk about some of the broader trends and the changes in the political space uh, around you in terms of uh, gender progress, um, I, I'm wondering if you have, if you could share some of your personal experiences in terms of the difficulties uh, that you have faced. Uh, have there been some personal challenges for you? So yes, uh, engaging in a space that, uh, as I mentioned, is predominantly patriarchal in nature. Uh, is, is not an easy task. Uh, it's one that uh, has caused a little bit of, uh, I would say, unrest even for myself because it, it's a space that sometimes you are ridiculed for what you believe in. It's a space where even going out and trying to discuss topics that are sometimes considered topics that should not be discussed in public spaces is, is actually quite difficult. Uh, in these similar spaces, women are not necessarily perceived as leaders. Uh, the roles that women are given are those that they should be either at home, taking care of the kids, and should not necessarily be participating in decision-making. And I think this is one of the main gender stereotypes that uh, we, we work with in each and every day. Uh, secondly, is as much as we appreciate the use of technology, technology has also become a space where the lot of bullying happens. Mm -hmm. It's also a space, women especially as you put out your agenda, it's also a place where you also get pushback uh, from misinformation because people are trying to harass you online as you put across what you do. They create the false uh, personas and, and put that across and, uh, and unfortunately with a lot of misinformation and very little uh, true information being passed in some cases, uh, this actually is then taken as the uh, quote-unquote gospel truth, which in, in most instances impact the way we, women who are in public spaces, are able to do our work. But despite all this, what actually keeps me going is the fact that uh, we as women uh, know that there is the importance of our voices to be heard. If you actually don't engage in these spaces, then uh, we know the impact this will have in our own communities. I actually work on also preventing violent extremism, which is not an easy area of engagement. And what drives me is the fact that I work also with a network of other women peace builders and each and every day we go out of our way, putting sometimes our lives at risk to discuss what are the real socioeconomic issues that are driving extremist violence in our communities and how it is important to not only look at 
the securitizing and the militarization approach that sometimes is used, but to actually break that down and look at what other policies do we need to put in place? What other empowerment activities do we need to put in place so that young people are not attracted to violence and extremist violence in particular? And so this has been a critical task that we keep doing each and every day with successes, I have to add. Because as I mentioned, I look at it from a political strategy for a democratic peace. Uh, for me, what we have been able to do is even talk in spaces where uh, most of the policies are considered very securitized. And this is in, in particular designing a national strategy on prevention of violent extremism. When that strategy first came out, it was silent on gender. And now, two, uh, three years down the line, with the support of the National Countering, uh, Counterterrorism Center, we have been able to put out another strategy that actually has a stronger pillar around gender issues, in particular looking at gender equality and gender equity. And I think this has come through from the dedication of most of the women who have been engaged in this space to actively keep engaging actively keep engaging with the state institutions because at the end of the day we have to work in partnership with the whole of society which includes the state institutions well um, the challenges of extremism and violence are quite uh, prevalent or common uh, around the world and among many countries as well and i'm curious in in all of your work and contributions um, do you feel that the participation of women or the perspective of women um, is particularly effective in dealing with um, these issues? And um, are, are there you know, some examples of your successes um, where um, the contributions of yourself, uh, but maybe as well as other women, uh, have been the key to resolving uh, some of these difficult challenges? Yes, so I strongly feel this need and continuous need to engage with women, especially when addressing uh, not only um, conflict, but also violent extremism in particular. We all know that, and even research has shown this over and over again, when you have women engaging in political spaces, when you have women engaging also in policy as well, women actually bring in a different dynamic into the conversation. Uh, in most cases, you even notice that uh, conversations also get geared to key areas such as education, health care, rights, as opposed to putting a lot of financing around issues to do with defense and, you know, putting uh, uh, national security as opposed to human security first. And as women and also directly working in this space, what I think has been clear uh, engaging in this is the importance of not only viewing women from the lens of mothers and persons whose children are the ones who are joining extremist groups, but also women's agency around the element of prevention, uh, being able to put across awareness around the importance of you know, um, tolerance and, and living at peace with one another while practicing your, your religion as well without fear. Uh, so for me, at the end of the day, you cannot have democratic spaces when the democratic ideal in itself on inclusiveness 
it is not taken seriously. And inclusiveness for me, it means having women in those spaces to ensure that conversations are happening, having practices that also address inequalities that are within the communities we serve. And so those are key critical ingredients. Great. You know, you've um, addressed my next question, which was about um, gender equality and uh, democracy and, and how the two uh, work hand in hand. Um, so let me move on and ask you if um, being in public life and having this uh, active role in uh, peace and security, uh, have there been any uh, surprises for you? Uh, what have been the pluses and minuses for you personally? I still get surprised that we still have to discuss the importance of having women in the spaces, be it uh, in the boardroom, be it in the in parliament, uh, be it you know within community meetings. I think it, it's still surprising that as many years have passed, with all the knowledge that we have been able to to gather, with all the the research that is with all the facts that people are noting that we still have to come out and defend our positions of why we need to be in these spaces mm -hmm. and i think this is surprising to me uh whereas actually to me maybe should be a wake-up call to the world is actually the pandemic because yes. what the pandemic 19 has done is clearly showcase the inequalities and the impact of inequalities. This is why for many countries, including my country, we have seen an increase in gender-based violence. For instance, in Kenya, the very first month that we uh, initiated COVID measures, mm -hmm. gender-based violence went up 42%. Mm -hmm. So these are clear indications that we really don't need to solve problems just from the surface level. We really need to get down into the root causes. And in most cases, the root causes are social issues, economic issues, uh, including political issues. So as, uh, as much as we want to address COVID-19, uh, which is really imperative to address, I think it's important not to address it in a silo. It's important to address it from all the, the uh, areas that I mentioned. Yes, well, since you brought up the pandemic and COVID-19, um, do you think this current crisis uh, has um, influenced your political viewpoints? Um, you, you mentioned that gender-based violence has increased and um, how and, and you said that there you know we need to address the source of the violence. Um, has this increase been related to the formality in which um, the government or society has has uh, responded to the pandemic, uh, such as uh, work from home or um, restrictions on outside movement? Or do you think there are other broader um, considerations and, and challenges that and we need to overcome in addressing um, the pandemic and its challenges? I think COVID-19 has changed political viewpoints and mine as well in particular uh, because one of the key things i can mention is i think it's what i've noticed is even clearly that trust when it comes to governance uh, and especially messaging coming out from governments uh, this is why we have a prolification of what we term uh, as misinformation, as conspiracy theories around COVID-19. This is why we have many people still uh, rejecting some of the COVID-related measures that are put in place, which is actually for uh, to, to protect the health of, of that citizen. Uh, but 
where we see why we see this is because there's also a limited trust there's lower levels of trust between the communities and the uh, and the governance structures that are in place and the people behind these governance structures and because of that you you notice the discrepancy in uh, in actually taking up uh, the measures in different countries including uh, my own country uh, for me what this has done is to try and see ways to better bridge the divide. Because when COVID happened and the measures uh, around the pandemic, for it to even be implemented, a lot of hard security had to be employed. We saw a lot of police going into, into communities, trying to enforce wearing of masks, trying to enforce curfews. And with that came the challenge of increasing the, the gap between the communities and security askers as well when it comes to trust. And moving forward, as we look at ways to address the pandemic, we and myself, uh, uh, including the institution I serve, which is Women in International Security, are working diligently to look at ways, how do we bridge this gap, right? Because a society where there's limited trust between it and the institutions that are meant to serve it is a society that is uh, more open to conflict, is a society that is more uh, at risk of democratic spaces being taken over and turning violent. And, and for us, it's important to ensure that we redefine the terms like security to mean security uh, around issues around health, uh, to, to mean security around safety uh, for women, for instance, to be able to go and, uh, and get maternal uh, health coverage when they need it, to be able to access those hospitals when they need it. So to us, it's all about redefining some of the state-centric terminologies around security to be more centered on the person as opposed to national security. You know, men mentioned the need for improved public communication uh, in a health crisis like COVID-19. And um, you also addressed the rise of disinformation and um, conspiracy over new social media platforms, uh, which you brought up earlier too. Um, I I'm wondering if do you feel there's a, a special role for women uh, in terms of being public communicators or facilitating that gap in public communication uh, when it comes to such uh, large-scale crises issues that uh, really affect uh, every single person, uh, like the COVID-19? Uh, yes, I absolutely believe there is space for women to support uh, communication and how we communicate during the, the crisis. Uh, I think one of the key things to put across is if you're uh, looking at even my own communities and how we addressed COVID-19 is when countries, and uh, especially the countries that were first hit, went into what we'd call a me-fast approach, mm -hmm. uh, where they look internally and not necessarily want to support outside, women and that I work with and myself, we did not use the me first approach. We looked at where are the challenges within our communities. We, we understood that information needs to get to, this, to the household level mm -hmm. and not everyone will be able to access uh, the same level of information 
uh, when living maybe in the rural setting or in the slum setting, as opposed to those who are in, in larger cities. So we employed the use of radio for one. Mm -hmm. So radio is one of the best communication tools in Africa and in, in Kenya as well. And we used radio to pass messages around how to protect themselves. But in addition, added in messages around peace, messages around ensuring that the uh, reduction of gender-based violence is also happening, and messages of where you get support in the event or you're a victim of gender-based violence. And I think this was critical because communities were able to now understand where do I get help? I do not feel abandoned because the fear the, the virus caused is most of the, even the peace builders actually took a step back to try and understand the pandemic uh, and in order to revamp some of their activities. And that created a gap of which the communities felt abandoned in their highest need. And for us as women peace builders and also persons who work at the community level, it was important to ensure that people feel a sense of connection, especially when going through such a crisis, which not many people had understood what it was about uh, and was still fairly new to them. And so that connection, the use of things like radio, putting up posters, mm -hmm. we went into the and actually did artwork uh, where we would paint messaging on how to protect oneself. Mm -hmm. the, the, the simple method of washing your hands, mm -hmm. uh, social distancing. Uh, it's also important to note that the element of social distancing is new. For most of us in the communities, our way of interaction is to engage and to hug and to have that connection. Mm -hmm. And then in a short period of time, this had to stop. And so how do you slowly help with behavior change so that they can be able to uh, keep themselves safe in spaces that are really cramped in some instances, especially in slums, uh, and ensuring that they still are able to receive food because they are, most of them, uh, most of the community members lost jobs. And so people had to step up and put food drives um, uh, and ensure that uh, these communities were still receiving the basic uh, food to, to keep going in their communities. Yeah, well, um, it, it sounds like you've been uh, very busy uh, throughout this period um, in, in trying to raise awareness and in communicating with the communities. And there has been a divide between um, those perhaps more urban oriented and connected through uh, modern technology to uh, sources of information uh, versus uh, other types of communities. And I'm wondering, uh, since your work does cover um, the region, uh, you, you deal with the broader Horn of Africa area, and um, have you observed any differences in how the different countries uh, respond to the current crisis? Um, you know, one thing that has happened around the world is uh, border closures and um, has cross-border work in terms of peace building uh, been affected in your region? So yes, cross-border work uh, has been affected because of um, the restrictions in movement, uh, the restrictions in 
the way the different countries also apply different measures and it also has increased the length of time to even do cross-border work when you have opportunity to to cross the border from one country to the other but one of the key things we've noticed is for countries such as Somalia which are coming out from their they are stabilized but their institutions such as the health institutions are still fragile uh, the pandemic has an impact especially in, in countries that are coming out of conflict and trying to rebuild and to stabilize uh, and I think this will actually take things back for them. Uh, for the Horn, we also had the threat of locusts and this has affected food security. So it was also a time for the Horn when we had like triple threats. We, we had the COVID pandemic, we had already uh, the security threats that are posed by uh, the extremists, especially uh, those uh, coming in from Al-Shabaab and uh, thirdly, we had the threat from the locust invasion, which was affecting food security. And so when uh, it, it meant stepping up in three forms, uh, addressing in, uh, how to support uh, investments around uh, cushioning environmental factors, such as the locust invasions, uh, supporting uh, putting out messages around health issues, but at the same time ensuring we are supporting dialogue because dialogue for us is critical in this in this particular time, and ensuring women are at the center of most of this dialogue because they are affected all the way to the community uh, to the household level. So ensuring they are there, making sure that even the conversations that we are having, whether it's on physical. Um, a support or social protection that it also has a gender lens. Unfortunately, it's still an area that needs a lot of improvement because when you look at social protection now, uh, it's not necessarily looking at things from a gender lens, yet women are majority of the caregivers at the moment are women. Uh, they're still underpaid uh, and in most cases not even paid because if they're providing it at, the, at their own homes, this is not a paid service. And so just advocating for, we really need strong gender lens to be looking at how we're addressing the pandemic and other crises to ensure that it is inclusive to all members of this of the society of which women are critical, critical and a large player as well. Wow. Well, you've been talking about uh, many multiple challenges uh, that are um, coming to you at the same time, but uh, certainly as many women leaders around the world, you're multitasking and deal with, dealing with these multiple challenges uh, in, yes, in a very clear, effective way. I'm wondering, you know, despite all these challenges, um, do, are you generally optimistic about the future? Uh, do you, can you foresee um, accelerated um, change in a positive way uh, for women's political empowerment in the next few years? Um, I am absolutely optimistic about the future. I think very strongly the future is female, no doubt in my mind. Uh, and I think looking at even examples we've had from the international community of how when you have female leaders at the realm, how they have been able to uh, ensure that the COVID-19 pandemic is really being tackled well, I think gives all of us hope uh, from across our different countries. Uh, 
looking forward in uh, in the next 10 years and looking at even the women we uh, i'm working with every single day and the young women in particular who we are supporting to mentor as well they give me hope because they are very strongly coming out then they're they no longer uh, um, looking at issues the way the previous generations were looking at it they are learning from the previous generations they appreciate what the previous generations have done to take us to the step we are now 20 years on and are now uh, creating their own innovative spaces to tackle uh, their their challenges around uh, whether it be political or social. There's so much innovation that is being put out. Uh, I'll give you an example. When you look at COVID-19, the, the girls came out and actually were amongst the first uh, to, to design masks, mm -hmm. uh, come up with uh, you know, masks from the household level, just looking for materials and designing masks that are, co uh, are, are inexpensive, that can be used for communities. There's stepping stool for, for us to be able to wash, uh, to wash our hands. Some of these innovations were done by young people. So to me, they are stepping up to support uh, uh, efforts uh, in their communities. They're working harder to put out messaging on the same. I think the main challenge that they face is not only through the technology and the bullying and the harassment that is coming out, is getting that adequate space for people to listen to young people and say, hey, they too have a voice because the future is actually theirs uh, and have to uh, be able to sit at that table each and every day to discuss topics. I think uh, for us women who have been engaging in political spaces, we had coined the word that if you do not have a space or a seat at the table, you carry your own chair. But for them, they're asking, why do you need to carry your own chair? You can actually even use technology to keep pushing out the same messaging and getting to a bigger audience than that within just the boardroom but they do appreciate the fact that you still need to be in those boardrooms when decision making is is happening so it gives me a lot of hope that 10 years down the line we'll definitely foresee that completely the future leaders will be women well, it, it's great to hear this uh, optimistic tone and um, I think it's fascinating about the um, the role that the younger generation is playing and the innovation and creativity uh, brought into the picture um, of public policy, but also the new tools uh, in the technology sphere that uh, they are uh, able to deploy uh, does give us uh, some hope and optimism about the future space uh, for the next generation of young women and girls. And I, I do want to thank you so much for providing that optimistic outlook on the future. And um, it, it is great to talk to you, to hear you sharing your stories and um, the situation in your country and the multiple challenges uh, that you are facing. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be here today. And I look forward to you know, uh, getting to hear more from the other women uh, as the series continues. Yes, well, um, one thing about the pandemic is that uh, we have all 
um, adjusted and actually connected with different parts of the world uh, through these very new technologies and platforms that uh, you have mentioned uh, that is chartered and led by the younger generation. And uh, hopefully that will continue to keep us more interconnected. It will allow us to share best practices and the progress around the world and in different regions. Um, thank you again for sharing and for educating us all on your challenges as well as your accomplishments. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. To learn more about the series and NDI's initiative, please go to NDI's website at ndi.org.